Welcome to the Standard Age Podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. I can't thank you enough for listening as these episodes have been a wonderful supplement to the line of apparel that I'm thrilled to share is steadily growing. If you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. The website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will be the first to receive product release information as well as receive offers no one else is privy to. Just visit standard-h.com for more information. Seeing Standard H worn by a growing number of watch enthusiasts has been incredibly cool to witness, so chances are good if you're listening to this, you're probably an enthusiast already. However, if not, it makes no difference as Passion Find Jewelry welcomes everyone into their shop in Solana Beach, California. If you're already in deep, you'll know some of the brands that Tim Jackson and his team carry, which are some of the most highly sought-after independent watch manufacturers sold today. Names like Roger Smith, Grunfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as the Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at contonement.co, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co, and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. I met today's guest, Claude Greisler, at a dinner party in New York City during Wind Up Watch Fair, only to realize we shared a few things in common. Watches, cars, and an affinity for one former pro skier, Yoon Olsen. Claude is one of the two men behind the boutique watch brand Armin Strom, who manufacture only about 250 pieces a year, and like their watches, Claude is full of exciting details. Much like the Alps where Claude lives, Armin Strom's design language is somewhat arresting in the greatest way possible. What I love about Armstrong is their display of technical prowess often on display on both the dial side and through their case backs. As I chat with Claude, I soon realize he has his own technical prowess often on display in the mountains as someone who enjoys all aspects of alpinism. We discuss the ins and outs of the company, which coincidentally gained its 30th employee the day we recorded this conversation. Further, Armin Strom is among one of the very few companies producing 98% of their movements in-house, which is fascinating, and when it comes to sourcing anything else, rest assured they're using some of the best in the business. Claude walks us through nearly everything that goes into what ends up on your wrist, and it's no joke when it comes to his education and technical capabilities as a watchmaker. You know, making tourbillons, minute repeaters, things like that. I loved hearing about how Claude and his business partner Serge took over Armenstrom, hearing Claude's lineage of watchmakers. His grandparents even made stopwatches for Hoyer. My experience with watches couldn't be more different from Claude's, and that's part of the reason I love this hobby. Hearing how his business has evolved and grown just makes me even more happy to be in and around the industry. Claude happens to have some incredible cars and has the stories to back them up, so stay tuned for those because it's a healthy portion of this episode, which is great. I'm your host, Wesley Smith and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast.
But Cloud, thank you for for taking the time uh, to be on the show. Uh, it's good to see you, having only met once in New York. Um, I'm excited to learn more about Arm and Strom, that's for sure. And I'm sure the, the audience is as well. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, you're you're located in Biel, Switzerland. Yeah, we are based in Bilbien. So Bilbien is um, called so-called the Watch City. Um, it's uh, first of all, it's a city which has two officially languages. There's German and French officially speaking in uh, in Biel, Bilbien, okay. and then we have quite a lot of watch companies uh, which are uh, based in Bilbien. Now, how is that? Is that any sort of way related to Switzerdeutsch? Yeah, Switzerdeutsch is uh, so. First of all, Switzerdeutsch is just a spoken language. Mm. There's no grammar, so there's no writing, there's no reading. Everything we write or read is in German, oh. and Swiss German is just a spoken language. So, oh, interesting. If it, if it comes to official paperwork, and I mean, we text each other in Swiss German. But um, if it's via mobile phones, but there's no grammar. So you can, whatever, you you write it the way it sounds. But if it's officially paperwork, it's everything is done in German. Oh, interesting. I never knew that. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, um, I guess privy to the language, but I had no idea that there was no grammar, or that, you know, it was different in that way. That's interesting. Well, what can you tell me about the town other than, you know, like the watch centric aspects of the town, obviously? Well, the town is based on a very beautiful lake, which is, by the way, very cool for windsurfing. I do a lot of windsurfing. So oh, it's cool. one of the best lakes in Switzerland uh, where we have the best wind conditions. It's Bilbien is an area which is very known for its wine. It's a good wine area. We get a lot of sun in summertime. So it's a very good climber uh for uh for wine yards so it's uh it's very typical for this region what kind of wine grows there is it like when i think of like german wines for example i think of like gewürztraminer or like uh you know um some you know like a sweeter white i think i think that you know what happens in the wine or the, what happened in the wine industry it's what's happening in the watch industry it's funny because they go away from mass production and they focus on high quality Swiss wine. So mm. if they have Sauvignon Blanc, they have Chardonnay, they have Pinot Gris, they have uh, Gewürztraminer. So they have all kinds of different grapes. There's less volume, but they are all handmade. They are very, they really, really increased the, uh, the, the quality of the wine in the, in the last 15 years. Oh, wow. So it really is like watches. <laughs> yeah, we have a little bit of Pinot Noir on the red side. There's not many red wines, but mostly it's white wine. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, that's really interesting. Um, are you into music at all? Me, myself, not at all. Oh, really? Um, okay. uh, no, Serge, Serge is, is really into music. Serge, my business partner, owns one of the biggest uh, music festivals in Switzerland. Oh, wow. Um, but myself, I'm really not. That's I think that's the only weakness I have is music. Oh, interesting. Because I was kind of wondering, like, like, what was the first concert you ever went to? <laughs> well, I still remember my very first concert was, uh, uh, but it was an Italian, it's Gianna Lanini. It's an Italian uh, uh, artist. Oh, okay. What kind of music is that? 
this Italian rock. She was very, very famous in Italy. So it's like the Bruce Springsteen in women for Italy. Oh, wow. Okay. Is that something <laughs> you're still kind of into that genre is rock kind of your vibe or or what else do you listen to? Actually, the, the, I, I would say rock. Yeah, definitely rock. Yeah. Right. Cool. Well, you mentioned Surge. How did you two meet? Um, so we are both born in Burgdorf. Burgdorf is a small town in the Swiss German part. It's um, it's about a 40 minutes drive from Bilbien. Mm-hmm. And we both grew up uh, in Burgdorf. We were both born 1978. Okay. So we know each other since, uh, since kindergarten, uh, oh, cool. graduated together, uh, college, and then... Um, my background, my family background is watchmaking. So my grandparents were already um, in the watch industry. So for me, it was since I'm very, very young, it was clear that I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my studies uh, in the, in the watch business. And Serge um, was more into marketing and business. So he followed. Uh, he's a watch collector um, because that's his watch background. Is collecting watches together with his father. And um, yeah. This is what we know each other since uh, since childhood. Oh wow! So, what do you do in your free time when you're not working? Um, that's so. I'm a I'm a big outdoor guy. I do a lot of. Uh, I live in the in the Bernese Alps. My wife uh, uh, has her runs her own business up in the mountains, and mm-hmm. so we live uh, in the Alps. We do a lot of mountaineering, climbing, uh, skiing, uh, everything which you can do with a rope and your feet is something we do. And then windsurfing here in Birbien. Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing. This, I would say this is the most, where I spend the most of the time next to work. Is oh, that's Mountaineering amazing. and windsurfing. Are you into ice climbing then? Yeah. I do all kind of everything we can do on the mountain is what we do. You say that so nonchalantly, <laughs> like, oh, yeah, sure. Ice climbing. Yeah, it's just like walking. If you spend so much time in the Alps, uh, and with, it's a paradise. You know, the Swiss Alps, they are so, right. of course, they are narrow and everything is close to each other. But the infrastructure is just great. So you can go. We have so many huts, so you spend, uh, if you, let's say, if you have a day off or two days off, you walk up to the hut, you sleep in the hut, the next day you summit uh, a mountain, and then, uh, yeah, you walk down. That's it. A lot of glaciers. It's always more fun to ski down than to walk down, of course, but, uh, yeah, in summertime, even, yeah, mountaineering is a big thing. Big thing for me. Oh, man, that's amazing. Wow. I, I So I've done... A little bit of mountaineering just in high school and and some kind of early parts of my 20s but nothing that technical for a long time i mean i've snowboarded and things like that of course but like in hiking here in california it's a little different uh you know elevation and terrain but um i i would love to go over there and and check that out i um I have a very good friend that grew up outside of Geneva on the French side in Evian in France. And he lived up in the hills there. And it's just so so I've seen those types of mountains before and I've been among them, but I've never really experienced them in the way that you're discussing. It's uh it sounds like an epic adventure waiting to happen. <laughs> it is, it is definitely. Yeah, but 
you know, that's maybe the downside of being in a, the, the village where we live is very small. So we have more cows living there than people. Sure. But the cool thing, it's very outdoor oriented. So you open your door and your backyard is, uh, is are the mountains. So, yeah. you know, in, in wintertime, you just, I mean, we, we can walk from our house. We put the skins on the skis and then we start yeah. walking, climbing up the hill. So it's. It's fun, yeah. but we have no. On the other hand, there is no infrastructure, so there's just maybe one or two restaurants serving bad food. So uh, <laughs> there's no theater. There's nothing going on. You know, Saturday night, it's like it's very boring to be there. So that's why maybe why uh, most of the people spend their time doing outdoor stuff, biking or climbing or skiing. Or, you know. Yeah, it's probably a very healthy population. I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the people who do spend. Their time outdoor, yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You can't great. compare with New York. You know, this is why I love New York or big cities, but after a while it's gets it's too loud, it's too noisy. So I have to I have to uh, leave them uh, after four or five days. Yeah. Right. Yeah, get back into nature. Yeah, I get it. Well, I wanna talk a little bit about Arm well, a lot of bit actually, about Arm and Strum because it's a fascinating brand to me. Um, I don't know how much of my audience will know about you guys. I mean, you're obviously not like an enormous company. How many people do work there, actually? Actually, now we just uh, we have the thirtieth uh, employee arrived today. Wow! Congratulations. So thirty people. Yeah, already. Yeah. Well, it's such a tight group for what you guys actually manufacture then. It is, yeah, it is definitely. the The fact is that we do everything in house. So from we have a, an engineering team, um, which is uh, which I also do a lot of engineering. But I have two engineers for the uh, movement developments, case uh, engineering, straps, clasps, everything. And uh, but they mainly focus on movement. I would say they spend ninety five percent of their time they spend on movement developments. Then we have uh, three mechanics. Um, they um, actually they order raw material like brass and steel and they produce all the parts uh, all the movement parts in house not the rubies not the mainspring but uh, the screws the pinions the wheels the main plate the bridges the small little pins everything's produced in yeah i remember when we were speaking in new york i think you were saying something like you guys produce roughly 98 percent of what goes into your watches or something you know a high high percentage so just the mainsprings and the rubies are are almost that's it that's do you guys do your cases and all and everything else as well so um no if it comes to the movement i would say it's 98 percent in-house we have uh two suppliers for um cases um, the reason is just that the machines who do produce cases are very specific if it comes to titanium, steel, and gold. And mm -hmm. our volume for each material is still very low. Right. And uh, But they're family-owned businesses. Uh, they are people which we work since 12 or 13 years with them. So they are quite cool guys, and they really focus on case-making. Case-making is a different story than movement parts. Sure. And then we have a supplier for straps and clasps and then if it comes to dial we either work with um kari Wuttilainen. if it comes to gioche type of uh, dials we do some dials we do in-house and um, then if it's a specific kind of finishing we have to you know 
let's say for stones, we have a guy who does uh, stone dials. We just made actually two mirrored force resonance with opal uh, dials um, mm -hmm. for customers in California. Wow. They were just we just sent them a week ago, um, and therefore we have somebody who is cutting the opal stone and is bringing it to the dial. And then hands are made uh, in house. All the hands are made in house, and uh, yeah, that's a bit that. And all I would say, if it everything which is uh, around the movement, it's a bit the mix of in house and uh, and uh, and working with the suppliers. Sure. So your relationships with those suppliers were many of those or are many of those today the same as they were say when you guys took the brand over or have you guys kind of moved and shifted throughout time and and if so was that based on volume or was it just based on aesthetic or um we quality wise we had uh, to shift while some of them um uh, over the last 12 years or 13 years um but the quantities our quantities are still very low so we are mm -hmm. maybe we started maybe with producing 50 watches today we are at 420 or 450 watches this year oh wow yeah. wow but on the other hand we have to say that the movement became more difficult to produce also i mean we started with very basic movements like hand winding automatic winding and today what we offer in our resonance uh collection or even the gravity equal force so there's much more engineering done on the movement side so mm -hmm. there's definitely more going on on the on the movement side that what when we started uh, a few years ago now are you a watchmaker yourself as far yeah. as like certification and stuff yeah, goes yeah. so, so after, did you after college i spent four years to become a watchmaker that's like the standard watchmaker uh certificate which you get in switzerland and then i graduated as an engineer in watch restoration and high-end complications and um after so this took an extra two and a half years that's uh studies which uh are um or words and today they are not anymore but when i did it they were um integrated in the museum uh, watch museum in the shot form which is the biggest watch museum in switzerland um, so you get trained of how to restore old complications and uh, as a standard watchmaker you get trained for um, the standard things like chronograph uh, date functions uh, escapements so on so on and if you do this extra two and a half years you you discover like uh, tourbillons, minute repeaters, perpetual calendars, uh, detent escapements, all kind of complication things which were done in the past. And then no. graduated after that, even as a watch engineer, um, there was, uh, I was very, very curious about three-dimensional developments. And I saw that there's much more opportunities to work as an engineer than to work in watch restoration. So th this is, uh, I had the chance to to graduate as a watch engineer. And then my very first job was also to, um, um, with a company where I could develop uh, a high-end movements. So it was a, a company who produced high-end complicated movements for several uh, different brands, like tourbillons, uh, tourbillon minute repeaters, uh, and things like that. And so when you were doing those roles, 
was that kind of a contract basis sort of as a consultant or was that still under Arm and Strom and you guys would just produce for other people? Uh, back, so my very first uh, job was not with Armstrong. That was uh, with Christophe Claret. It's uh, one of the high-end brands. Um, and back in those days, Christophe Claret, this company, were selling tourbillons, producing tourbillons and miniature pieces for brands like Shira Perigo, for Uris Nardin, for Parmigiani, for so for several watch brands. This the 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 company which I worked for were exclusively producing high-end. Um, high-end movement sure and then after uh my first experience as a watch engineer a search um came uh, or approached me with the idea of taking over armin strong because armin strong himself is also from burgdorf from the same town where we grew up i know armin strong since i'm a child because his workshop was just next to my father's workshop Oh, so cool. my father is an optician and I knew Armstrong since I'm very, very young. And when Serge approached me and uh, because he had the vision of taking over uh, Armstrong because he thought it's very cool. We have a local uh, heritage in watchmaking and it's a cool philosophy of having the movement visible, of not working with plain dials, uh, transparent, mechanic, transparent mechanics. And this, uh, yeah, and we had the beer together, said, okay, why not? When we, we were young, we were 20, we had 28 or something like this. And said, okay, let's go take over the brand. Let's build the manufacturing. And uh, yeah, whoa. <laughs> wow, that's a, that's incredible. So it, it help me understand how that actually came about, though. Was it Serge's idea and you guys pitched it to Armin? Or did he openly have a conversation with Serge and was like, hey, I'm thinking about selling my brand, so to speak. And Serge was like, you know, hand hand raised. Okay. Yeah. I'm, it was I'm it was a bit exactly. Yeah. It was a bit Armstrong was looking for somebody who takes over the brand. Okay. Um, he uh was he already was past 65, so he was already in his uh close to be retired. Sure. And he knew that Serge is a watch collector um because Serge still lived in Burgdorf, I myself, I was very already with my wife up in the Swiss Alps, and um, so and yeah, they regularly talk to each other, and um, so it was Armin's idea to handle over the company to somebody uh, who who he knew, and he didn't want right. it to have somebody just investing in his brand. So it yeah. was for him. It was like, okay, if I trust this guy, uh, I'm gonna handle it over. And Serge had a cool strategy because he didn't want it to change the name, which was very important for Mr. Armin Strong. And uh, he also wanted to uh, definitely have the band, the brand built on transparent mechanics. Mm -hmm. sure. Because Serge as a watch collector said, you know, as soon as I talk to another watch collector, we start to flip over the watch and we talk, we spend more time talking about the case back. Uh, to, when you have a see-through case back, we spend more time on um, talking about movements than talking about dials. And therefore, yeah, this is the, the brand philosophy just perfectly fit to his taste of, of watch collection. Now, what was your relationship with watches outside of the mechanics and the engineering and your background of, of being uh, kind of in the throes of all the gear trains and such, you know, from your perspective? Like what watches were you attracted to early on in your life? more honestly always focused on movements and movement parts and 
there was this my, my grandparents they were working uh, after the second world war they were working they were working in the watch industry they assembled stopwatches for her year and they had their own little small brand and um so and the the the, the brand symbol or what they offered to the retailer was a a, a cube a, a glass cube with with all the movement parts inside and when when we were very very young like five six years old we were always taking this as soon as we were with our grandparents we took this uh, glass cube and and really enjoyed this three-dimensional art of, and the parts which were inside and so the, the the grandmother was very proud of that we enjoy the watchmaking so as soon as we got older like eight or nine she trained us how to assemble and disassemble the Hoyo watches wow. uh, the stopwatches and so this is how I got in touch in, in watches so it was never a purely love for a brand it was okay. more really always like movements how they work gear trains barrels escapements complications uh, and I think this is still how, the way how I buy watches today is more based on the on, on the on the technical side than that I do purely focus on aesthetics. Well, as soon as something is interesting from a movement perspective, it fits to my collection. Very cool. So, what was the last watch you purchased? Are you like Roger Smith, where he claims that he can't afford his own watches, basically? So, like. He's always wearing like his Rolex Explorer One, for example. Like, it looks like you probably have on one of your pieces today, which I want to I want to talk to you later about that because it looks incredible. Um, what was the last watch you bought that was not an Armand Strong? The last watch. Oh, it must have been a long time ago. <laughs> like, a, like a, no, because no. I bought a few garments for my mountaineering. Uh, oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's just it's just very useful to have a GPS and uh, to navigate if you if you get into clouds. Sure. The few of them. Um, God, your life is so much different than mine. Maybe <laughs> I bought uh, Vuka, um alarm clock. Oh wow! Just okay. because of the movement, and I had uh... yeah, that's maybe. The... But it's a vintage. It's I'm kind of vintage collector um, because I can't afford the watches I would like to purchase today. Um, oh, I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, I, I understand that. Yeah, I think the last one, the last very cool watch I purchased is a is is a is a is a Vuk. But but that was not a brand choice. That was really. Because the movement, I was curious about the movement. Yeah, there's this cricket, the the the, the cricket movements they had with this alarm set. Uh, they are very cool. They are very easy. So there's not there was a need to have an alarm on the on the wristwatch, which is I think it's always fun because there's like either watches makers they wanted to improve something, or they um, offered a solution to a need. And this is sometimes it's a different approach in engineering if you wanna bring something further or if you react to a need. And from an engineer perspective, it's completely a different, uh, it's the movement looks completely different, you know? It's like, uh, and sometimes it's nice to have very beautifully built high-end escapements or tourbillons or, mm -hmm. um, and on the other hand, it's fun to see these functions which 
were these mechanics who were built to offer a function. Sure. Well, I want to talk about Armin himself just real quick, because I think I heard you say in another interview, perhaps, or maybe it was in New York, that that Armin was quite sort of famous in your area and sort of a kind of a an outgoing guy who who drove cool cars and such. So yeah, exactly. what can you what can you tell me about him and, and maybe even some of the cars he drove? So Armin himself, he was the fact that he delivered every single watch himself. I mean, he was very one of the very first independents, and um, there was no retail uh, infrastructure for um, independent guys. Mm-hmm. So the Armin always said, like, you know, for me, it's easier to handle over a watch in person, take the money, bring the money back and uh, invest in, uh, in in new watches than uh, handling through retailers and uh, uh, things like this. So I remember sure. that, he, that, that, that there was this story that he flew with the Concorde to, from, from Paris. He took the train to Paris, took the Concorde to New York, flew back with the same Concorde to Paris. And the same day, uh, almost he was back home. So, and uh, with he delivered the watch and came back with the money. Wow, that's uh, that is how he became famous. And then he was like, there was another story because Armin also tried to do a little bit of marketing. There was no social media. He didn't have money to invest in in in, in print advertising. So one day he thought like, okay, let's do. I should do the smallest skeletonized in the world to get in the Guinness Book of World Records. Oh. <laughs> and this is how he did. So he skeletonized the smallest mechanical movement he could find, fully skeletonized it, called the Guinness Book of World Records and said, I have a world record. I skeletonized <laughs> the smallest uh, wristwatch in the world. And so the people came, he got uh, he got his award and uh, got famous for his award. So, um, And on the other hand, as you mentioned, he drove Jaguar E. Type and you know he was quite the character. I mean, I think you have to be a character to be able to uh, be a, a pioneer in independent watchmaking. Because mm. I mean, he was working at his workbench. People called him. Uh, he said, "Okay, yeah, I'll. Do you need the prepayment? No, because I deliver myself. If you don't give me the money, I don't give you the watch. So this was a bit his idea of of, yeah. of delivering watches and." Yeah. He was quite a, a character then. That's really cool. What um, speaking of cars, what do you what do you drive daily? Um, daily, I drive uh, Mercedes uh, V class because of all my outdoor gear stuff, ropes and surfboards and things like this. <laughs> yeah. And um, then I have a Land Rover Defender ninety. Oh, what year? Uh, 2013. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Now, are, that's not a right-hand drive, obviously. You guys drive on the left side of the road. Left side, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What color is your Defender? Black. Now, do you take that up into the mountains a lot? Yeah, that's the reason why I bought it. So the Defender was made for short distances. Yeah. And so in, in the mountains, we only drive short distances. But I modi- I modified it a little bit, so I have different tires, uh, different things. So a little bit. What did you do to it? That's what these podcasts are all about: details. So I, I gotta so know. I, the first time, so I, I I wanted to have the defender prices. They went crazy. 
Yeah. And um, so the funny thing is I was in Singapore um, for a watch show, uh, flew back, and then so the plane, they leave uh, very late in Singapore uh, to fly back to Switzerland. Sure. And I had this alert on the, on the, on the car website. And uh, so this alert popped up and said, okay, Black Defender 90, low mileage, 2013, because I wanted to keep the car for years. This is yeah. my vision. So this is the car I'm going to keep. I will never sell it. So um called my friend in Switzerland and said, listen, um, you have to go. You have to buy the car. I know the price <laughs> is okay. The mileage is okay. And, uh, you know, if it, if there's if the car is not damaged, just buy it. I'll bring you the money uh, as soon as I can. So my friend who owns a car garage went to see the car, said it's okay, bought the car and um, very standard Defender. So mm -hmm. nothing really fancy uh, on, on the Defender. So the first three years I had it because I wanted to keep it very originally. But then I started to modify it a little bit. So I did an upgrade on the engine and did upgrades on suspensions. I did like a how you say this overhaul, you know, if you flip the car to not damage the car, this is like tubes, which you can build. The the roll cage is what we would roll call cage. It. Exactly. A roll yeah. cage. Then the lights were very bad. So I put led lights and I have inside it was the car was like uh, light gray, the interior. And I changed the whole interior to black. Oh, wow. Which is maybe the coolest update on the car. Oh yeah, that's your favorite. That's my favorite because the end, the way how you drive the car is completely different. If you have a dark roof or or like a, a bright roof, it's completely different. Oh, interesting. No, it's a cool car. What did you do to the engine? Is it supercharged or something? No, we are not allowed. So there is a V eight option, I think, in the US and in the UK. You can put, um, uh, I think, it's a Corvette. Uh, the same engine they use in the Corvette. Oh, like an LS swap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is where in Switzerland they're quite strict. So I just modified, I pimped it. Uh, there is a different uh, air filter, uh, some small details uh, on the engine. Now, how is it running? Is it giving you any issues or? No, it's just that. So maybe I shouldn't tell it because <laughs> someone is listening <laughs> to what I did. It's not very legal, let's say. Oh, some well, illegal modification. We we love this at Standard H. We like this. <laughs> <laughs> That's one car, and the latest car which I purchased is a Lamborghini Gallardo. Really? Uh, yeah, and uh, so there was the very last Lamborghini Gallardo which was built was called the Edizione Tecnica. Yeah, Superleggera LP. 570 and it's uh, the Edizione Tecnica. So the Edizione Tecnica has even more carbon fiber. There's the ceramic brakes on it and everything. And the cool thing is the car was built during the 50th anniversary of the manufacturer. So it has this special number plate. And uh, so it's the very last uh, generation of Gallardo and uh, it drives really like a sports car. That's the reason yeah. why I, I, so a good friend of mine and a customer from Armstrong owns several Lamborghinis and the guy is 68 years old or supposed to 70 years old. 
And um, he offered me to, so I already drove the Gallardo. It was, it was his car. And um, then he purchased two or three Huracans. And then he said, ah, one day I said, okay, listen, I will surprise my wife and spend a, a few days uh, in, in Italy. And uh, can you, can I rent one of your cars? And he said, ah, no, come oh. on, you don't have to rent them. Just take whatever you want. Wow. And, uh, and I said, oh, okay. And he's like, uh, okay, do you want the, uh, which Huracan do you want? And I said, like, I personally prefer the Gallardo because it drives so much. It's so much more fun to drive. Um, it's more direct. It's really like a race car to drive. Right. And he said, okay, ah, yeah, it's it's true, but I'm struggling because with my back and I have, it's very, for me, it gets difficult to get into the car. And though the car has very, very low mileage. And then, uh, I drove back and my wife, actually, my wife fell in love with the car because really? the engine sound and everything is just amazing. And she said, and so there was this guy. So we we, we slept in a hotel. And um, so the other, there was a, a McLaren 720, it's a 720. I think. 720S, yeah. 720S was just next to us. And um, so in the morning, the, so those guys arrived, we arrived, and he, the guy from the with the McLaren said, ah, oh, congratulations to your car, it's an amazing car, the, the sound is so amazing, blah, 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 blah. I said, no, it's not mine, it's a friend of mine owns the car, blah, blah, blah. And he gave us his, uh, his, um, his number and said, okay, if one day your friend wants to sell the car, they're going to buy it. Because right. that's, uh, that's like, that's a car which I... I've always loved, I will always love it. The design is so cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 how much mileage? And I said, it's like 20,000 kilometers. So there was even less. And he said, oh, this is a very good investment. That's the cars you should buy. <laughs> and so we drive home and my wife was like, why, sh why shouldn't we not buy the car? Yeah, I was like, from that moment on, you wanted the car. <laughs> exactly. And this is all, yeah. And the guy offered me the car for a very, very nice price so he was Amazing. so happy that somebody he knows does his watches fell yeah. in love with his car and you know if he want if he wants to do a, a, a car show he just calls me and i bring him the car and he can he can take the car so it's a very friendship based uh, investment yeah i love those types of relationships which is sort of similar to armin right selling you know selling the company i, I guess did you guys buy the company or did you just kind of absorb it? Like I don't, I don't know how that transaction unfolded. Not to get off too much on the cars. But... No, but we bought it uh, because I mean, when Armstrong himself bought the company, was selling the company, and we bought it from him, there was just a very small workshop. There were only two watchmakers involved in the business, and Armstrong himself. He had a few tools, but there was no manufacturer because. Right. His uh, watch kind of watchmaking was based on, he took existing movements, vintage calibers, and then um, uh, skeletonized them. And mm. when we took over from Armstrong, we didn't have a clear idea of becoming a manufacturer. It is something which came later on. Interesting. Yeah, I just love that parallel, though. Like you have the relationship with the previous owner of the car. You have the relationship with the previous owner of your company. And and both are happy to be, you know, passing it along to you because they know it's in good hands. You know, I think that's really that's really nice. There's there's a good sentiment there. But when when you and I were in New York and we had dinner, um, we started to talk a bit about consistency 
and how difficult that is to achieve, especially when you're actually manufacturing something. You know, things like the finishing being perfect, you know, and things of that nature. What what can you... Do, do, I don't know if you remember us talking about that, but but can you share about your kind of view on consistency and maybe how important that is? I think consistency is... Um, in watchmaking, it's extremely important. Consistency in quality, in as, as you mentioned, I mean, hand, hand finishing is... The way how we judged watches from the past, the way how we, if you, if a watch comes to an auction, what can the auctioneer say about the watch? Okay, there's some value tributes to the brand, maybe to the design, but then they're gonna, they're gonna analyze how this movement and the watch was made. And this makes the, the value of the, gives, this gives the value of the watch. And this is exactly the rules which we do follow. So, Every single part in Armstrong is 360, get the 360 degrees uh, decoration, huh? handmade decoration. Um, and so I think it was pretty consistent. It's because it's the way how it was made in the past is the way how we do it today. It's exactly the same techniques. It's exactly the same finishing. Maybe the bridges are designed in a more contemporary way. The engineering is done by um, computers. Maybe the milling is done by CNC machines, but the hand finishing is, if you go a hundred years back, uh, it's exactly the same technique. So we polish with wooden sticks. We have polished paste, which is which is was used in the past. So there's there's a lot of. I think this is also what is success of Armin Strom is we have this fusion between tradition and innovation. So there's mm. a lot of. We love watchmaking and we have so much respect for the tradition in watchmaking. But on the other hand, we think that there's room to in, in, invent things like the resonance is for, for me, it's a, our signature piece is exactly what Armin Strom stands for. I mean, resonance is not something Armin Strom discovered. Resonance is the technology where you have two movements in one watch which to synchronize each other. That was discovered by Christian Huygens 400 years ago. Um, Incredible, and then a lot of big watchmakers like um, Abraham Louis Breguet, Antti Chanvier, or François Bourgeois worked on resonance, and we saw okay, resonance is very cool because just the 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 the, the high high end watchmaker were able to achieve a resonance watch, and we saw that there is room to improve, and said okay, why should we not be able to improve uh, an existing technology? And there was a little breakthrough with our resonance patch spring, um, a very modern contemporary re-engineered mechanism based on tradition with this handmade finishing is what makes uh, what makes this watch so successful. And this is even in System 78, where we work with the more standard movements. That means we have one barrel, one gear train, one gear train, one escapement, one balance wheel, but we add exactly the same type of finishing. So in Armstrong, there's no difference if you purchase a watch for 15,000 or for 380,000, it's the same kind of finishing in all our watches. This is what the brand stands for. It's called, of course, the, 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 the watch for 15,000 uh, has less parts. This may be a hand winding three hand and the resonance, there's almost double the parts because we need two movements. But yeah, this is what, what drives the company. Oh, that's beautiful. What, uh, what piece are you most proud of? 
I would say for now, every watch is has something uh, which I'm extremely proud of. Uh, Resonance was definitely a breakthrough mm-hmm. for the company. Um, it's also we got, uh, yeah, there was much, the brand got much more recognition on the market in the collectors' communities. And um, yeah. So you had your 30th employee start today, which is a, a funny coincidence. Um, you're surrounded by all these other brands in Switzerland and watches and, and you know, manufacturers and such. Um, do you find your employees by seeking them out from other brands or do you find that they kind of jump ship, so to speak, to work with Armin Strom? Um, and how does that tarnish or affect your reputation there? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, 30 people is a very low quantity. For In BBN, we have Rolex Movement Manufacturing. Incredible. And Rolex, they, they have 3,000 employees just working for their movement production. The watches, they are assembled in Geneva. They get the dials, the hands, the cases, everything's made in Geneva. But the movement production for Rolex is in BBN. Just next to us is Omega. I think they have uh, 200 uh, or close to 200 uh, watchmakers. So there are many, many watchmakers, uh, people who do work for the watch industry in BLBN. And, um, but there's not many companies offering, or there's only Armstrong offering this high-end um, watchmaking, uh, manufacturing, everything manufactured, hand-decorated, handmade. And I think this is what makes Armin Strong very attractive in this in this field of, 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 of big brands. And so, sure. you know, if you, we have our watchmakers who, some of them think one, two, three, four, five of them, they got trained by Rolex and they have friends in Rolex. And, you know, yeah. if, if you need somebody, it's just, it's, I, we are in a lucky position that for now, even when it's difficult to get people, there's always people who want to work for for Armstrong. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because obviously Rolex and Omega aren't really known for their finishing, so to speak, right? Like you are, and Laurent Ferrier might be, and and all these other you know smaller brands, and you know FP Journe and and you know of the like. So it it makes all this it makes all the sense in the world that they would leave a brand like Rolex to go work with you because they're being more celebrated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If they, if they have this passion for watchmaking, you know, there is a, this also, this is always a bit regional, you know, not everybody who is working in the watch industry is passionate about watches. There's also a reason people have to work to get their salaries, to get the bills paid. Sure. But if, if it comes to if a young watchmaker is talented, is motivated, of course he will get bored in assembling the same movement the whole day. Um, it's good to have maybe have this experience for a short period of time, mm-hmm. but then what we see if they get um, uh, if they have like five, six, seven years of, uh, of of practice time, then they most of them they do like the decision of age staying in a big company and try to grow in a big company to become a head of or whatever or if they're really into watchmaking of course they were looking for a small brand and uh, and working uh, more on finishings and uh, assembling a resonance is much more cool than assembling uh, 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 just a standard chronograph yeah sure 
Yeah, that makes sense. But they have to be passionate. I think this is also something which you feel if it comes to to Armin Strong. Um, this we always talk about watches. You know, we always talk about how could we do things better. We always have lunch together. Um, uh, even if a coffee break, we talk about most of the time. We talk about watches, and uh, and that's a cool thing in Armin Strong. Everybody's really fully, fully motivated uh, and and is passionate about watches. That's great. No, I love that. How often do you guys kind of um, branch out from Mr. Strom's design language? Like, is there anything aesthetically, you know, because because of the the ethos of the brand where it's the movements being viewed both through the front sapphire, you know, and the case back and hence the 360 degree finishing that you guys kind of have to do um, to a certain degree. Um is there any sort of design or, or aesthetic evolution that you guys have brought forth or have you always sort of stuck to Armin's original sort of design ethos? No, I would say design was one of the biggest, since we became a manufacturer, we work with a lot of off-center time indications mm. um, to also it was at the very beginning, it was to prove that we do our own movements because mass produced movements always have the hands in the center. And if you want to go off center and having a micro visible on the dial side of the barrel, so you have to manufacture your own movement. And we were so proud that we said, okay, let's change uh, the, the, the very classic approach of a watch of having the hands in the center to uh, also bring movement parts more on the, on, on the display. Sure. I think this is maybe the biggest, the biggest difference in because Armstrong he didn't have the opportunity to produce his own movement. I That's see. Maybe one of the biggest thing. But the, yeah, in time it has changed a lot. I would say from a very he has a very he had a very very classic approach because his finishing the engravings and everything were extremely classical. And also he didn't have the the, the this uh, momentum or just the chance to improve. I mean he could. It was like a car tuning guy, you know, he took an existing engine, he took a good engine, and he took the maximum out of his engine by modifying as much as he could with the good knowledge by modifying this uh, engine. And Armstrong, we do re-engineer engines. That's a bit a different approach. He was more on the on the, the guy who took the maximum out of an existing engine and Armstrong, the new Armstrong is building engines. That's very cool. Your balance cock sort of looks like a tuning fork to me. <laughs> so is does that has that been the way that it always has been in Armin Strom because of his skeletonizing or skeletonization, I guess you could say, or is that a uh, is that is that surge in his music affiliation? <laughs> no, it's a bit. Uh, it belongs a bit to our. Especially in System 78, we have this design uh, language on our bridges. And um, because my design inspiration is um, driven by a, a German uh, industrial designer. And he always said, like, okay, you know, good design has to be honest. And good mm. design has to be uh, uh, long living. And this type of designing a bridge was already... Already people with pocket watches use this type of designing because, I mean, you have this round uh, 
jewel to hold and the most easiest way to hold it is with the straight bridge sure of course the bridge is skeletonized belongs to our philosophy it's hand finished it's hand beveled so on but it's a long living design and i think i personally strongly believe that the watch has to be long living and uh, because if i want to purchase a watch today the watch should be nice even in 10 12 or 15 years so this is why it's a bit has this design language a very contemporary but long living design language. Oh, I love that. So when you're collaborating with the likes of, say, Collective Horology, which is obviously how we met, what can you say or can you walk us through those initial conversations that maybe you had with Asher and Gabe with regards to how you guys could come together and put your minds in the same room and design something cool? So when we, so first, when we met, we, we got a lot of, of people asking for doing special editions and, uh, sure. and, uh, but when we met the, uh, those guys, um, the collective boys, we saw that they have a passion for watches, a, a real passion. It's not about business. It's about, they wanted to do an army, a watch with Armin Strong because right. they love, uh, independent brands. Mm -hmm. They have, uh, very nice watch collection they uh they really knew what they are talking about so let's say okay straight away when we met them we said okay we share the same philosophy in the watch uh, in the watch business so we said okay we uh, were convinced that we can do something together and then um we were looking for inspiration and um Asher and Gabe gave me uh three kind three visions of how a gravity equal force could look like. One of the visions was like a technical outdoor gear uh, interpretation. Right. And as soon as I saw this one, the other two, they were already gone because yeah. it's, it's exactly my my world. Yeah. So yeah, it was very, it was very from there, it was very easy going. I think we had the same. I mean, they, uh, they have their passion for, they also, they collect knives. Which I also have like this outdoor use. It's useful to have a good knife when you're outdoor. And there's also like if you go if you're a little bit closer into how people do manufacture knives, so they have some different shapes and very this technical approach. Same with my tech gear. You know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of cutouts, a lot of skeletonization to make yeah. things lighter. lighter. And yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, and we it was actually it was quite. I was surprised. It was. It was very, I won't say it was easy because we, I wanted to, you know, if it's your thing, which you, the, the outdoor world is very, very your thing. So you, you want to be, we want to make sure that you get the maximum out of it. But as soon as I, when I was able to present the first few drawings, I was pretty sure that it's a, that it's uh it, it will be killer and they both agreed from beginning and uh, we did some small modifications like colors and uh, and from there uh, it was uh, yeah i think it's an amazing piece honestly i'm very very proud of this uh, very first time we used titanium in case that's right in in gravity equal force and then the bridges with the cutouts i think the plate there's so much things going on it's not the plate underneath it's not it doesn't take room um because it's dark 
But on the other hand, you can explore so many little details. If you if you have a closer look like this, this Kyoshe type, there's right. also some open work pockets uh, to make the main plate lighter. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of things, a lot of things going on. Yeah, I feel like good watch design, at least in my opinion, you continue to notice new things about it, either on the dial side or the the reverse side. Um, and I, you know, I only handled your watch for a matter of like a, I don't know, two minutes. And it was like my eyes were just going everywhere, you know, okay. just enthralled with the design. Who came up with the color, the specific green? I think the so the green was Gap and Asher's idea to uh, to add the green as a color because mm -hmm. it's from a maybe I might I was a bit more into maybe a little bit too colorful and oh. um, then it was very cool to 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 yeah to to have to design a little bit more on the calm side than right. on the very very shiny bright uh, side. Right. It's again, it's long living. You know, it's green. It's a is 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 popular color. Green goes with blue. Green goes with brown. Green goes with black. I think sure. it's a very it's a very easy. It's easy to combine the green watch when you go out. You know, whatever yeah. you wear, it somehow it fits to it. There's blue and green, which do fits to almost all uh, other colors. Yeah, I agree. They're very versatile colors for sure. Um. Many listening to this show may not be familiar with the X-Pro skier that you and I are familiar with, Yoon Olsen, which, so when we met in New York, I noticed that you had one of his backpacks Yeah. Uh, for DB Journey, as it's now called. It originated as Douchebags, which is hilarious as a name for a bag company. <laughs> um, I actually have several of those pieces from that from that brand and, and knowing Yoon and his travels around the world, it, it only makes sense that the bags perform really well and are, you know, well thought and, and designed. Um, and you sprung a detail on me that utterly shocked me. You said you did Gumball 3000 with him? Yeah, exactly. From Stockholm to uh, Las Vegas. That's unbelievable. I have to hear more about this. How, well, first of all, what was your introduction to Gumball? Um, so we were back in, I think it was 2014. And we were, we had a good friend uh, working in Formula One, um, or was a driver in Formula One, Max Chilton. Oh, nice. Max Chilton um, knew uh, a guy who was involved with Gumball. And um, the fact is that we had the relationship with Max brought us to meet uh, Maximilian Cooper, the owner of, uh, of Gumball. Mm -hmm. And um, we, um, he's a watch fan, uh, Maximilian Cooper, mm -hmm. and never heard about Armin Strong, um, never heard about independent watchmaking, um, um, because he was more focused on uh, the bigger brands, but loved watches. And then we showed him what we were able to do. You know, we said, "Okay, let's. We can customize pieces. We can do. Uh, <clears throat> we can do a gumball watch uh, together." And uh, so he came to us. He visited us in Switzerland, so the factory. And he's very. He's a product guy. And uh, so he said, "Okay, no, wow, this is much cooler than having a big brand sponsoring gumball." And so we did uh, uh, a gumball tourbillon, which was uh, limited to five pieces. And we did um, uh, a double barrel uh, gumball watch, 
with like carbon fiber and uh, we did an entry-level gumball Stockholm to Vegas uh, watch and then our goal was a bit to to also use gumball as a platform to showcase uh, showcase our watches so but we were uh, you know we were building up the factory and uh, didn't have uh, money to buy a, a, a race car or a sports car but thanks to the relationship that we have in with the that we have with the car industry there was tech art this Porsche oh, sure. yeah. tuning company. They do like body kits and stuff. Yeah, exactly. They offered us uh, a 911 Turbo uh, completely rebuilt by TechArt to wow. do the race. Oh, because my next question was, what car were you in? But that sounds like an incredible car. Yeah, it was an incredible car. Yeah. Wow. Unfortunately, we broke it in between uh, <laughs> LA and Vegas. Just before entering into Death Valley, the stone hit the, uh, the radiator and really it was like somebody uh, was was shooting into the radiator. So we lost all the, the liquids, uh, the cooling liquids. Right. And then we had to transport the car, bring the car somehow to back to uh, to Vegas. Unbelievable. That's so unfortunate because you were so close to the finish. <laughs> we were close to the finish, yeah. But it was wow. fun. We made a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, police guys, uh, which were were very curious about what we what kind of car we drive. There was even a share. It was a fun story because there was one guy, uh, the police officer. Uh, he was from LA, and uh, he was totally aware of Gumball because his wife is a producer of something, and his wife is driving an Aventador, and, no uh, and it was fun. And the guy. Uh, because we had a, a meeting in Vegas, a presentation of uh, of our watches, and so the guy drove, searched to uh, to the to a, an airport which was very close by, offered him a burger and fries. Uh, <laughs> well, it took care of him that he could catch a flight to be on time in Vegas, and uh, and I was sitting at the highway and waiting for a guy picking up the car. Yeah. Oh man, that's brilliant! Wow, that's incredible. That was a well, it was fun. I mean, you know, we did Stockholm, Oslo, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, right. and then from Amsterdam we took the plane. We loaded. We were loading all the cars into the plane. Flew to Reno. Had to wait till they unload all the cars, and then drove from Reno to San Francisco, from San Francisco to LA, and from LA to Vegas. Wow, that's incredible. What does something like that cost? Like if you wanted to participate, how much is that? I don't know exactly. That was, uh, we got an invitation as uh, the fact is that we did some watches for them. Sure. Uh, we got invited, but I think it's something between, I would, I guess today it's something close to 20,000 per car or something. Wow, wow. So what was the lead time for you now that I think about it? Because you obviously had to develop that watch, right? And you, you're making five of them. So did you know about, you said this was 2014? Yes. So were you working on the watches like for a year at that point? Or like, or did you produce the watch? Did you sell, did you kind of pre-sell them, so to speak? And then you produce them after the fact? 
we we produce because it was every everything happened in a very short uh yeah. time um i think we had the prototype we had three prototypes uh, with us during the rally mm -hmm. and then we delivered um the so we had to make sure that the entry level got delivered quite after the race and um so we did a few pieces from the uh like the standard collection and we had uh, there was one or two teams ordered like with their specific uh, car number on the watch mm -hmm. and uh, special straps fitting the cars they drove for the rally and then the turbines they were delivered maybe a year or one and a half years later okay cool well, you mentioned earlier there are watches that you say you can't afford. What what is what is one of those watches that you would love to own? It's <laughs> a good. Oh, there are so many. It's it's <laughs> it's it's difficult to say. I would. I'm honestly. I'm a fan of MB and F. Of course, um, I know yeah. Max very well. I love his philosophy. I um, love the legacy uh, line mm -hmm. because it's very transparent mechanic also. I mean, balance wheels, which do uh, the new chronograph for the perpetual calendar are very nice watches. Um, I really, really appreciate what Kari Wuttilainen is doing. Sure. Um, well, I, they're close. I, right? I just know, but they are, they have, I mean, he has ordered for the next six years, he told me, so... Wow. Yeah, there's definitely no chance to get one of his watches and uh, um yeah i mean a roger smith would be definitely something which i would uh consider to buy sure. uh, if i would have the chance if i would have the chance to buy one yeah definitely awesome. the indie world um of course there's uh, i mean there's some icons um design wise i mean a, a royal oak is cool and Nautilus is cool um Rolex Daytona is cool um but I don't feel that I have to have one of them right um it's just like the other guys I know there's not just buying a a, a watch it's like you know it's same with us you you buy a philosophy you mm -hmm. know the guys you know what they what they how much effort they put in their brand and uh, yeah this is, sure. this is definitely the world of watches I would consider to buy. I can't remember if I've said this before on the podcast, but when you're looking at a Nautilus and a Royal Oak, because I've seen them several times at this point, I, I must say, and this is somewhat of a hot take, I guess, but I must say I would absolutely go Royal Oak over the Nautilus 10 times out of 10, and it's based on one detail. And it's the fact that the indices in a Royal Oak have the curve on the edges, the same as the hand. So it, it, to me, it's a much better match, the handset and the indices versus the bars of the Nautilus. The fact that they're not curved and they don't match the hands drives me crazy aesthetically. It just bothers me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. So I'm also from, from, from a... From a very perspective, I I myself 
I love the bracelet of the AP. The AP bracelet is just so cool. It's it just fits so good. Right. It's so angular, but it's so comfortable. So it's almost kind of a a brain tease of like, well, that doesn't even look comfortable, but it is, you know, whereas like, you know, an oyster bracelet or like a Jubilee bracelet, it's all curved sort of, you know, so it, it, it even looks comfortable. Whereas like the Royal Oak looks like, oh man, that might, that might not be that comfortable, but it, oh, is. it is. Yeah, And that's, that's what the, I love the little surprise, right. That, that watches can offer in that sense. All right. Well, for, for the last little bit to wrap up, let's talk about what's on your wrist currently well on my wrist is the very first uh mirrored force resonance um which we so we came out in 2016 with the first resonance and that's the prototype of that's number zero zero of the first 50 watches with it mm. oh, so the one on your wrist is number zero zero that's what you're saying yeah yeah that's the prototype of uh of the of the actual series you'll have to um send me a photo of that so i can share it when we promote this episode yeah but you know like a i think if you go on my if, if, yeah. if you go on my instagram there are many uh many good pictures of this because it's the, the watch i wear daily oh amazing most of the time yeah it's now it's a white dial sorry it's not on the yeah. screen currently uh yeah cool that's so good looking. I love it. All right. Well, I'll, I'll seek out those photos later. But um, Claude, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm glad we got to do this. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. It was fun to talk about Armstrong and all those things, cars, and uh, it's always fun. Yeah. I want to see your Defender as well because I'm obsessed. So I do a watch box called the Defender Watch Box, and it's named after the Land Rover Defender. Okay. And, okay, um, so I'll send you a picture. Yeah, I yeah. I will do that. All right. Well, listen, have a, a great evening, given the time difference. Um, I'm just starting my day. I'm almost through my first cup of coffee. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll speak soon. I appreciate it once again. Thank you. Okay. That's very cool. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This wraps up this episode of the Standard Age Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd love it if you'd share it with a friend or two. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover these episodes. It absolutely helps far more than you realize. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. <laughs>